the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Hello, I'm Tiffany McTaggart. And I'm George Gawley. Welcome along to the Animal Health and Welfare series of podcasts, which is brought to you by the Farm Advisory Service. During 2021, we'll be bringing you eight podcasts. We want to provide you an insight into latest strategies which are being both developed and implemented with the ultimate aim of improving the welfare of our livestock. Over the course of the next year, we'll be disseminating topics such as precision livestock farming, genetics, behaviour, disease and resistance and how these challenges can be overcome to allow us to meet the challenges of the future. Today the focus is on hens. I'll be joined by SRUC's monogastric research scientist Dr. Salvatore Galgano to discuss his work, which is aimed at finding alternatives to using antimicrobials in broilers. In the second part of the podcast, we'll be joined by senior behaviour and welfare scientist Dr. Victoria Sandilands to discuss her work, which is addressing the need to improve housing systems for the welfare of laying hens. Salvatore, thank you for joining me today. Hello, thanks for having me today. Would you just like to start by introducing yourself? Yes, of course. My name is Salvatore Galgano, and I'm an academic research scientist at the Scotland's Rural College, SRUC. Um, my main research interests are bacteria, and especially bacteria that live in the gut of monogastric animals, such as, for example, chickens or pigs, and interactions between these bacteria and animals' health and performance. But also, I'm really interested in uh, uh, finding antimicrobial alternatives, which with special interest in reducing antimicrobial usage in farm animals. I carry out my work at Allermuir Avian Innovation and Skill Center, a center of excellence developed in partnership with uh, SEAL, which is a center for innovation excellence in uh, livestock. The Allermuir AISC is the larger poultry research facility that can accommodate scientifically sound replicated trials from small scale pilot studies through to testing ideas under near commercial conditions. Now, Salvatore, much of your work has been centered on finding alternatives to antimicrobials. Could you just tell me a bit more about antimicrobials? What are they currently used for in the poultry sector? How are they administered and why are they so important? Yes, of course, antimicrobials are substances that can limit or suppress the growth of microbes, such as bacteria like Salmonella or Campylobacter. Therefore, we should use antimicrobials only to treat infections. They are very powerful and they have are a powerful weapon that we have to cure infections, as it is demonstrated by the large number of deaths, both animals and people, that we used to have before the production of antimicrobials as pharmaceutical products. Unfortunately, during the past years, the misuse of antimicrobials have led to serious problems. In fact, 
they used to be administered at low levels to prevent some diseases or as a group promoters. Different countries have adopted different rules during the past years. Here in the UK, for example, and the, the set of law uh, to, 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 that have been in place uh, to reduce the antimicrobials as a low promo, grow promoters have seen a drastic reduction uh, since a ban of 2006 following a UA ban uh, for uh, antibiotics used for non-medicinal purposes. What is your main concern going forward with the use of antimicrobials? Um, obviously, the main concern would be resistance. How much of a problem actually is this in the UK currently? That's correct. Uh, in fact, the misuse of antimicrobials has caused, and actually unfortunately is causing what is known as uh, antimicrobial resistance. In other terms, those microbes that were not killed by low antimicrobial levels used develop a resistance to that antimicrobial. And the worst part of this is that unfortunately, microbes can transfer resistance to one another. And resistant bacteria that were originally found in animals can easily spread into the environment and in other animals, like, for example, humans. Um, the WHO, which is the World Health Organization, has already stated that without taking action, we will lead to a post-antibiotic era in which simple infections can once again kill. Globally, about 700,000 people die each year from drug-resistant drug infections, 50,000 which are across Europe. Here in the UK, the estimated yearly cost for the NHS to treat drug-resistant infections is about £180,000. The UK has developed a 20-year vision and a five-year national action plan on antimicrobial resistance, which reflects the needs that we have to act now as the prediction of mortality from antimicrobial resistant diseases by 2050 is about 10 million per year. So clearly this is a big problem for the poultry industry going forward. What yes. alternative antimicrobial methods have you been trialing and what is your reason for 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 choosing some of these alternatives we are currently assessing the potential of a molecule which is called parasitic acid or paa um, this is a technology developed by a company called aga nanotech that forms paa from two different precursors so as a basic technology based on the power biocide effect of PAA that combine the two precursors together and forms the biocide at the end. A bio, a PAA is a, is a substance that is capable of killing microorganisms, but without causing resistance, which is the main point of this research and also is a very safe substance to use. We are currently assessing the effects of the administration of this patented technology by Aga Nanotech on both gut microbes and health performance on the broilers. During our research, we have already demonstrated that PAA could reduce the bacterial concentration in some of the gut sections analyzed and could also have a positive effect on performance. So, Salvatore, could you just tell me who, who exactly is involved in this project? 
So the project is a wide collaboration, and uh, uh, we are uh, there is a collaboration between SRUC, Aga Nanotech, which is the company that have created this technology, Gamma Healthcare, CL, which is the Center for Innovation Excellence in Livestock, Innovate UK, and we also have a collaboration overseas with a partner in China, which is the Shanghai Veterinary Research Institute. Institute. Um, therefore, it's a wide collaboration. Thank you for explaining that. So, Sal- Salvatore, could you maybe just give me an overview of your tri- trial? Um, what exactly are you doing? So, so far, we have already carried out two separate trials. Uh, the first one in 2019, in which we had assessed the effect of parasitic acid in water, and uh, the following one in uh, 2020, in which we had assessed the effect of a PAA administered with feed. During the first trial, we had seen that the impact of impact of uh, different levels of inclusion of parasitic acid on total on a, on a total of 96 ROS 308 male brothers were peculiar and uh, were quite present throughout the, the, the parameters analyzed. So basically, you are administering the PAA at different concentrations. Exactly. That is correct. And Fantastic. we compare also this concentration with the control group, which does not receive the, the, the treatment. That's why we can understand whether the treatment worked. And what exactly are you measuring during this trial, Salvatore? So, so clearly you've, you've got the, the different concentrations of the PAA and the control. What are you measuring during the 14-day the trial? During this trial, several parameters were measured at different time points as well, such as, for example, body weight and feed intake, which allowed us to calculate and compare performance parameters such as body weight gain of feed conversion ratio between those several treatments that we had administered and the control group. Also, at day 14, we collected samples from different parts of the digestive systems and uh, we have seen a reduction of bacterial concentration in the crop of birds that were treated with parasitic acid. Yeah, so basically in simple terms, you're looking at bird body weight, feed intake, and I suppose the conversion ratio. Exactly. All the performance parameters that could be indicative of whether the birds were affected, their health was affected, or their performance was affected, by the treatment. And could you give me a summary of the results? What what exactly did you find? Of course. We found that birds administered different concentration of parasitic acid at a trend of higher body weight gain, so better performance, but also the feed intake was higher, which means that they had consumed more feed than the birds in the control group. Very interestingly, Parasitic acid seemed to have reduced the number of bacteria in the crop of birds that also had higher body weight gain. So there was a complete correlation between a PAA administration, reduction of bacteria in the crop, and higher performance. Also very interestingly, some of the bacteria that usually are correlated with good health, so for example they are used as a probiotic, were increased in the birds that were treated with 
or parasitic acid. This means that parasitic acid could also be responsible for some of the, of the changes that we see in the gut communities in favor of bacteria that are good for the host in that location. Oh, thank you for explaining that. So, so clearly, Sal Salvatore, was there a particular concentration that you found worked best? Was it the low dose, the, the high dose, or was it the dose somewhere in the middle? Well, we found a linear effect, and uh, uh, I could, I, I, we, we could see uh, that all the concentrations administered had a similar effect. Um, the, 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 the amount of, um, of, of the parameters that was measured on the different birds was similar throughout the different treatments which is indicative of the perform of the, 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 the functionality of the molecule itself, although little differences were uh, found between the different treatments. For example, the uh, body weight gain um, uh, was better, let's say, in birds that had a little a higher dose of PAA uh, uh, than the control. Yeah, yeah. And um, you mentioned the, the impact on the bacteria in the gut. Could you maybe just expand on that a little bit more? Was it the case that the PAA increased some of the good bacteria and decreased some of the bad bacteria? Could you maybe just tell me a little bit more about that? Of course. Uh, so in general, we found that the total number of bacteria uh, in the crop was reduced. Now, researchers have um, uh, try to analyze what's the best output for gut communities and how this output is correlated with host health and performance. Obviously, there is no um, uh, simple answer because gut microbiota, which is the ensemble of all the microorganisms that uh, are uh, found in the gut of animals, have multiple interactions with the host and at different levels. Therefore, um, as you were saying, sometimes it's uh, uh, more important whether we found a concentration higher or lower of particular species because these bacteria could be directly correlated to good or bad effect for the host. Now, during our research, uh, the, the total number of bacteria in the crop was reduced. And this has been associated in the past with a good uh, effect on host health and performance. In fact, there is uh, one thing that has always, is always underlooked when uh, we are uh, talking about correlation between performance and microbiota, and is looking at the upper level gut microbiota and performance. Um, according to some past researches, in fact, uh, gut microbiota levels in the upper gut lower gut microbiota levels in the upper gut could be correlated to better performance because of several reasons. For example, a higher nutrient availability for the host because bacteria are not eating on the same substrates or also depletion of substances that can be deleterious for the host. So in general, a reduction in the crop could be associated to good results. And in fact, here we see that we had a improved performance in those birds that had also lower bacteria in the crop. With that being said, bacteria are uh, not generally good, not generally bad, but 
their action and their effect depends on the context in which they are uh, allocated. For example, the gut location that we are looking at, and also the interactions that several bacteria inhabiting the same gut location have between each other. During our research, for example, we have found that there was a particular increase in the, some bacteria that are used, for example, as a uh, probiotic uh, in the higher treatment levels of PAA. For example, um, we found that a bacterium called Enterococcus was uh, higher concentrated, so, so it, it, it was high in number in uh, uh, the uh, treatments rather than in the control. Now, this specific bacteria is, uh, has been used in the past as a probiotic in uh, chickens and uh, has been correlated with improved growth performance. So probably PIA administered as we did during that trial allowed um, the, the, this bacterium to thrive within the community. And probably it is a possibility that the performance were improved also because similar bacteria were uh, actually proliferating. Yeah, no, those are really positive results, Salvatore. Do you think that farmers listening to this uh, podcast can expect to be using PAA as an alternative to antimicrobials with their broilers soon? The results achieved so far are very encouraging and do point towards PAA application in the real world. So I am convinced that PAA as developed, as developed by Aga Nanotech can represent a valid alternative to classic antimicrobial approaches. So I would not be surprised to see parasitic acid uh, in the technology that is developed in here uh, used in the future. Also, the results so far demonstrate that PAA could have a very positive effect on performance. Thank you, Salvatore. Now, what, what are maybe some of the barriers to using PAA is it is it quite a an expensive um, pro product or is is it a a hard product to work with or is there just not not enough um, research there to release it now? Well, I will say that we are just at the early stages of this uh, specific field, and uh, as uh, we could see for uh, many other approaches uh, there, um, we have just to generate uh, more data that uh, keep uh, producing what the results that we have already observed, um, and therefore good effect on both bacteria and host performance and health and demonstrate that uh, PAA is indeed safe to use. To do that, we need to, do gener we, we need to generate more data. But all we have done so far is pointing towards the right direction. So there is no real barrier to the use of PAA apart from the usual time lag that you have to have between uh, the discovery of a, molecules, uh, of a molecule and its actual use in a, in a commercial environment. It's more or less the same of when we find a, a pharmaceutical a component, but we need to wait about 12 years up until that component is put there uh, for commercial purposes. I'm not talking about 12 years in this case, but there is a significant uh, uh, lag time before that uh, can be commercialized. Yeah, that's very clear. And you mentioned earlier 
Salvatore that this trial was obviously using PPA, PAA administered in water. Do you plan to do the same trial with feed? Yes, absolutely. So we did have a pilot last year, um, as was anticipating, uh, to administer PAA in feed. And we are currently uh, organizing our imminent future trial, which is uh, scheduled for next November, uh, in which we will administer PAA in, uh, in feed as well. So uh, the effect that uh, uh, parasitic acid as when administered in feed will be clarified uh, at the end of the following trial, so by the end of this year. Um, moreover, we are planning several studies and uh, uh, one of uh, the approaches is also to uh, 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 understand the effects of parasitic acid administered through the hydrolysis of these two precursors as the uh, 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 technology has been de developed by AGA, Nanotech, um, in uh, different animals, such as, for example, we are planning a study for uh, uh, pigs in the future. Salvador, thank, thank you very much for explaining that. It sounds to me like this is really exciting and groundbreaking stuff, and I, I really can't wait to see more results that, that come out of this. Likewise, <laughs> likewise. Thanks. I'd just like to say thank you for joining me today. I'm now joined by my second guest for today, Dr. Victoria Sandilands. Victoria, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much, George. Would you like to start by introducing yourself? Yeah, sure. So my, my name is Victoria and I'm a behavior and welfare scientist and I focus on the behavior and welfare of laying hens and broiler chickens. A lot of my research work um, involves working with government, so government grants, but I also work with NGOs and poultry companies. And I conduct my work in two main settings. A lot of my work happens at our poultry facility at SRUC, but I also work with industry and we, we go out to commercial farms and uh, set up tests and observe behavior and so on. Excellent. And a lot of your work, Victoria, has been centered around improving housing systems for the welfare of laying hens. Mm -hmm. Why is there a need exactly to improve housing systems in the UK? Well, there, there's been decades of research about housing for laying hens, and that I don't want to denigrate what's, what's gone before. There's lots of useful research and lots of things that have been taken on board by industry, uh, particularly with the piece of legislation that came into force in 2012, which governs the welfare of laying hens. That's an EU piece of legislation that the UK still follows. There have been great improvements to the way we house them. However, I think probably this is true for all farm animals is no housing system is perfect mm -hmm. and they have their pros and cons. And so my aim really is to to focus on on how we can make the, the cons less and the pros fewer. And uh, yeah, it, it's really interesting area of work. I'm, I'm really fortunate to be able to work in this area. Sure. So, sounds, sounds fascinating. And you recently conducted a project that compared the difference between flat deck shed systems and multi-tier systems. Could you just maybe explain what the key differences between these two systems are? 
Sure. So this is a good example of perhaps why we need to try to improve housing systems for the welfare of laying hens. So uh, one of the common ways to house hens, both in the UK and across the rest of Europe, is in a, a free range system. So when you go into the supermarket and you buy your eggs, you have a choice of eggs from caged hens, uh, eggs from barn hens, and free range and organic eggs. And the most common method of housing hens for the, the barn, free-range, and organic systems used to be something called flat deck. And that means that when you walk into the shed, you would find uh, lots of litter on the floor where the hens can peck and scratch. But then there would be a raised slatted area where the food and water was provided, which helps also to collect most of the droppings from the birds under those slats. And then down the center aisle, uh, still on top of the slats, there were nest boxes. And that was a really common way to keep hens in these systems. But in the past 10 years or so, there have been uh, a rise in the use of what's known as multi-tier systems. And these are uh, levels, one on top of the other, that the birds can move up and down between. They're not cages. The birds can still move freely up and down the, the tier. Uh, and they can jump from one tier up to the next and come back down again. And on those levels are where the resources are provided. And the advantage to a multi-tier system is that a farmer who has a barn, a, a shed rather, of a particular footprint in size can stock more hens in that barn, that shed if it has these multi-tier systems than if you just use a flat deck system because the, the levels, the tier levels count as usable floor space. So you can, you can stock more birds. So these are becoming more popular because of, at the end of the day, the, the producer is interesting in producing eggs for sale. Uh, and so it, it's a more efficient economically way to go, although there is, of course, a high investment of putting in a multi-tier system, as you can imagine, lots of equipment. Sure, sure. No, that makes sense. And so you you set about uh, trial con trying to compare the two systems, Victoria, um, yeah. what, did, what did you set out to, me to measure exactly? Yeah, so we were interested in comparing uh, these two systems um, in, in part after going into discussion with the British Free Range Egg Producers Association that there is concern that uh, from their point of view that a lot of their producers were investing in these systems and, th and they weren't actually sure if they were better for the birds. And some of their members said that they flat out were not better for the birds. So from their approach, we were interested in looking into that question. But also, I know from research that our institute has done, but also lots of published material, that systems where hens can move up and down through the 3D space are more likely to be associated with keel bone damage in laying hens. And so for listeners who aren't very familiar with what that is, the, the keel bone is that big sternum bone that runs from uh, sort of the collarbone of the bird down to her abdomen. And it's where the, the breast muscles are attached. So it's a very prominent bone, but it's also quite a weak bone as hens age because they're, they're producing so many eggs egg production uh, weakens the skeletal system, and that bone seems to be particularly prone to injury. So we were interested in comparing these two systems for the reason that Brefrepa were interested in it, mm -hmm. uh, but also we wanted to see specifically if it made changes to keel bone damage between one system and another. We were interested in 
feather cover because feather pecking is one of the major welfare issues amongst laying hens. And we were interested to see if maybe one system produced better feather cover than another. And I should say that, that feather cover is affected by a behavior called feather pecking, which is where hens peck at one another's feathers and they can pull them out and cause, which is painful for a start. If any, any of you know, if you pull a hair out by the root, it's sore. Yeah. But uh, also the hens can develop bald patches of skin, which is also prone to damage. And this pecking behavior can exacerbate to cannibalism. So it can lead to, to bird death. So that's unwanted, both from the bird bird perspective and the, uh, the farmer's perspective. But also, even where you have severe feather pecking, the birds lose a lot of heat. So they have to eat more food to keep warm. So it's a big vicious cycle. So we were interested in those aspects of comparing the systems, but also for egg production. So did it, did it make a difference to egg production or where eggs were laid? Because in laying hens, you want them to be laying their eggs in a nest box, which is um, how they're easily collected by automatic belts, but it also means the eggs are clean and less likely to be damaged. Hens will lay a few eggs in the litter, but those tend to be dirtier. They're more prone to being broken by the hens pecking at them, uh, and it takes time for staff to collect. So we're interested in a whole range of things um, surrounding these two systems. So what we did was, was uh, with British Free Range Egg Producers Association, we um, managed to get uh, members from Burfrepa to join into the study. They volunteered and we had 42 free range flocks that we were able to study over the course of about 18 months. And we just visited them once towards the end of lay. And we recorded data from 25 flat deck flocks and 17 multi-tier flocks. Mm -hmm. That's fa fascinating, Victoria. And could you just give me a summary of what the results were from the trial. Yeah, sure. So uh, we found that actually feather cover between the two flocks didn't differ. Feather cover was good um, in all the flocks we saw and, and similar, as I say, between flat deck and multi-tier. We were also looking at financial benefits. So we kind of, with um, collaboration with ADAS, we pulled together all the results we ha had and, and they looked at the costs between the two systems. Mm -hmm. And we found because of the combination of slightly higher egg production in multi-tier and slightly lower mortality with multi-tier, that there was a financial benefit to people who had multi-tier flocks. So that was interesting because even though the mortality between the two flock types and the egg production between the two egg, excuse me, the two flock types didn't differ in themselves when you combine those things and kind of added up the costs, it did. Yeah. But the most significant thing for, for my uh, interests in terms of hen welfare was to see that indeed keel bone damage was very different between the two housing systems. So we found in the birds housed in flat deck systems, um, on average, 28% of hens in a flat deck flock had a keelbone fracture. So um, people are pretty familiar with what fractures are. So, you know, an actual break in the bone. Mm -hmm. it, it had healed by the time we felt it, but you could, you could identify it. But it was much higher in the multi-tier flock. So 48% of birds in a flock on average in multi-tier mm -hmm. had keelbone fracture. We also measured another form of keel bone damage called deviation, and that's where the bone is indented as if it's been putting, had pressure put on it or it's twisted. 
And that also differed. It's much lower, but it, it did still differ. So flat deck hens, 3.2% had keelbone deviation, whereas 7.4% of multi-tier birds had keelbone deviation. Mm. So for us, from a welfare perspective, that was the most significant finding. And that does corroborate what we had read from other people's work, that these systems where the hens can move up and down through the 3D space are more likely to cause keelbone fracture and keelbone damage. And the important thing there is, as any of you know, who've ever broken a bone, it, it's likely to be painful. Uh, the keelbone fractures, particularly, we're not so sure about the deviations, but keelbone fracture is likely to be painful. So if almost half of the birds in your flock are suffering from keelbone fracture, then there's a real welfare concern there, and, and it's something that needs to be addressed. Yes. Uh, so it's in, interesting that the keelbone issue was was high, higher in the in the multi-tier system um but would i be right in saying that the the financial aspect of the multi-tier system was 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 higher so in a in a way victoria does the 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 economic benefit of the of the multi-tier system still outweigh the the flat deck system yeah, that, that's a really tricky question, George, because I think we're, you're trying to compare, not you, but the comparison there is sort of apples and pears, mm. if you like, because on the one hand, yes, there is a financial benefit to the producer to use multi-tier, but it's at the cost of more hens experiencing this this painful experience. Yes. Uh, so I, I think that most people would probably say that having half your flock with a bone fracture isn't acceptable. I think if you saw, if just to, to make a comparison, because you don't, because one of the difficulties is you can't spot a laying hen and just see from the way she's walking through the flock that she has something wrong with her. It's something mm -hmm. we find when we, we run our fingers down the keel bone and we feel for the callus that forms where the bone's healing. But if you were to say, look at a, um, a herd of dairy cows out in the field, and if you saw half of them limping through lameness, mm -hmm. whereas in another system you, you saw less limping through lameness, you might say that's really easily identifiable and it's not acceptable. Yeah. So, and I think, I truly think that producers do not want their hens to be, to be suffering in this way. So I think the, the way we have to go about it is look at well, the, the multi-tier system is beneficial to the bottom line, but how can we make it better for laying hens? Yeah, yeah. No, that's really interesting, Victoria. And off the back of this this work then, what further improvements do you think could be made to the design of these multi-tier systems to um, you still get that financial gain, but to improve the welfare of the hens? Yeah, well, so there's some research that shows that, um, well, first of all, you should be rearing the pullets. So the, the immature hen, when she's from chick to point of lay, is called a pullet. And she should be reared in uh, a system where she has to use a 3D space. And, that, and that's pretty well known now, the, the producers of the pullets tend to do that. If the hens are going to be going on to a multi-tier system, then they get reared in a, um, a, a similar system for rearing hens. So that helps them learn how to negotiate up and down the system. Mm -hmm. But something that can be helped is that in the, the laying hen multi-tier system, if you provide ramps, 
So that's a ramp that lets the hen walk down from one tier to the other. So she doesn't have to, to jump or fly. Then that's been shown to reduce the incidence of keel bone damage because part of the problem for hens is they're fairly big, heavy birds for the the area of their wings. If you looked at a jungle fowls or a feral chicken breeds that have not been selected for egg production, then you'll see that their their wingspan, or not wingspan, but the actual area of the wings is similar to today's modern hybrid laying hens. But our modern hens are much heavier. So although they can descend from tree branches and from multi-tier systems in these cases by kind of back flapping to slow themselves down, they're just heavier. And so it's harder for them to slow down and to land accurately. So if you provide these ramps between the tiers, then hens can choose to walk down instead of having to fly down um, to a floor, where, which is maybe crowded with other birds or it's busy with equipment, things like this. So providing ramps is good. It's also been shown to be good for hens that um, fall. So sometimes a hen will fly up to get to a perch, but the perch is really crowded with other hens and she, she miscalculates and she falls back. And these these uh, ramps can help break their fall. So that's another good um, potential thing. It's not too expensive to invest in uh, and can be fitted to the system retrospectively. Yeah. Yeah. So rel- relatively easy, easy to install, but but could make a, a big difference to the, yeah, to the could make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. The hens. No, that's fascinating. And um, yeah, I suppose uh, th- these multi-tier systems they're they're here to stay, but I guess for further improvements still need to be made um, in order to make sure that the welfare of the the hens is is paramount going forward. Yeah, I think so, George. And, and we know from uh, Burfrepa surveyed their members and they asked them, if you are thinking about investing in more hen sheds in the future, what will you be putting in them? And most of those people said they would be going for multi-tier. Yeah. So I think you're right. I think they are here to stay. We just need to learn how to make them better for hens and to train hens to use them well. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it's switching on to uh, a slightly different area of your work now. Victoria for um, cage hens. Now, now um, scratch mats are are a standard now, now for for most farmers. But but interestingly, there are no no regulations for the the size or the materials of these mats. Now, you recently conducted a, a trial looking at scratch mat design. Could you could you just give me a little overview of that? Yeah, sure. So uh, much to some people's surprise, uh, caged keeping hens in cages is still permitted. But what was banned in 2012 with that EU piece of legislation I mentioned was the use of what's commonly known as battery cages or conventional cages. And those cages were literally a wire floor, a feeder and a drinker, and a place for the eggs to be collected at the front. But in 2012, those were banned throughout Europe, and the only form of cage housing that's now allowed for laying hens is something called enriched cages. Uh, They also go by the name of furnished cages. 
And in those cages, what the hens are provided with is, is more space per hen, so you can't stock them as high as you used to in the battery cages. But they're also given access to perches, and there's a nest box, so there's somewhere for them to lay their eggs in relative seclusion. And there are also these things called scratch mats. But in the legislation, although it stipulates how much food trough space you have to give per hen and how much perch space you have to give to hens and so on. It doesn't say anything about what this area so that pecking and scratching are possible should be like. And as a consequence, the cage manufacturers have rightly so come up with different types of materials and different shapes and different positions and, and, and so on. And so when we were looking at this as a research question, I was thinking, you know, there really is no regulation here. And I had seen all sorts of sizes and colors and materials. And I thought I really did wonder if it made a difference to the hens. And so uh, what we did was we, in collaboration with a um, Scottish, Scottish egg producer uh, who was happy for us to come and, and do some work at her farm, we went to that particular farm. It was a, is a farm that had big Dutchman cages in it, and therefore the mats were ones designed by a big Dutchman. But we replaced some of the mats in some of the cages with other commercially available uh, scratch mat designs. So these are from three other cage manufacturing companies. Uh, the materials differed in um, color, but also in size and shape and, and whether it was a kind of uh, soft, pliable mat or whether it was a hard mat and so on. And so we put in uh, those mats into some of these cages. And then when the, the hens came in, we went back and visited the hens at three different ages. And we were setting out to see if the scratch mats themselves, but also the hen age, made a difference to the behaviors that they performed on the mats. And we were also interested to see if the mat types had any different effects on egg quality. And that may seem like a really weird thing for us to look at, but we know from historical information that one of the dangers of scratch mats is it, it's, a, it's a comfortable place for hens to sit. And so if a hen can't get into the nest box, you might think, well, you know, the next best place for me to lay my eggs is on that scratch mat over there. And it's really important to the producers that we're not doing something that causes dirty eggs. Mm -hmm. So we were interested to see if the hens that, uh, excuse me, the eggs that were seen to be coming from opposite the scratch mat and therefore they had been laid there, Did were they differing in egg quality, so dirtiness and cracked and so on. And so what we found um, over the course of studying those hens over a laying year was that the, the proportion of hens in a cage that we saw at the scratch mats didn't increase. Oh, and I, I'm sorry, I should back up a little bit. So one of the things about the scratch mats is it's it's a mat in the cage, but what happens is at least once a day, there's a portion of layers mash that's dispensed onto that mat through an automatic system. And that encourages the hens to come there to show pecking and scratching behavior. So when we were collecting data, what we did was we looked at hen behavior at the mats before that little portion of food was applied to the mat, during the food, when the food had just been applied, and then a bit after. Because we wanted to see if any effects lasted over the course of the day, not, not just at that time when the food's there, which, which is, of course, the time that makes the mat most attractive. 
Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, what, what we saw was we didn't see an increase in proportion of hens on the mats, either during application of scratch feed or shortly after application of scratch feed. But when the feed was applied, they were more likely to be showing foraging behaviors. So that pecking and scratching behavior. Yeah. And then when we looked at the, the eggs that we collected, uh, most of the eggs were clean and most of them were laid in the nest boxes, as you would hope, because that's the cages are designed to encourage hens to use that area for egg production. So we only had a very small proportion of eggs um, that were coming from the mat area. And of those eggs, only a very few of them were cracked or dirty. And the mat type didn't, didn't seem to be affecting dirty eggs, at least. Yeah. But there was a very small difference in that eggs laid opposite the big Dutchman mats were more likely to be cracked only at the final age that we studied hens, and we stu- uh, so at the 79-week age point, than any other mat type or age. But I wouldn't read too much into that because, as, as I said, we're talking about a tiny amount of the overall eggs produced. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I mean, I certainly don't think it would be anything to worry about if anyone has that type of cage with that type of mat. So we found over the course of all that, it's a bit of a long-winded uh, way of me saying that we, we, didn't, we didn't see any optimal scratch mat design of the four that we studied. Uh, and their use um, overall didn't differ from mat to mat. But we were really kind of struck by the fact that, that the use of the mats during our observations was really low, mm-hmm. which suggests that the, the mat designs at least were not a major influencer on, on bird behavior. But something we definitely have to take into account, George, is that when when we go to study hens in commercial environments, we notice compared to if we study hens at our own research center, those birds aren't as familiar with people kind of standing outside their cage and watching watching them. Uh, these systems, these big commercial systems can have over 120,000 hens in the one shed and so their individual time with somebody outside their cage is low. In our own research systems uh, at the facility we have here at SRUC, the hens are in, in smaller groups. We're in and out there all the time. They get very familiar with seeing us. So it could be that in the study we did at this commercial farm that our presence disturbed their behavior mm-hmm. more so than it would have if we had, say, mounted cameras and recorded them remotely. So we have to bear that in mind that it could partly be the study design that made it look like their use of the scratch mats was really low. That's mm-hmm. something just to bear in mind. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And I suppose that just brings me on to my last question, Victoria. What do you think is important for the industry going forward? Yeah, so one of the main issues facing egg producers is that the major retailers have agreed, more or less across the board, the major retailers, to stop stocking eggs from caged hens as, in terms of the eggs you, that you buy, the whole eggs you buy in the in the cartons. And so that's going to have a big impact on the industry. They need to decide what now is going to be what's known as the value egg so the the least expensive egg on the supermarket shelf. So of course we did this study in in rich cages here in Scotland. Um, I should probably tell the listeners that egg production is still big in the UK. It accounts for over forty percent of eggs produced in the UK. So it's still a big proportion of our our egg industry. 
So while the while the major retailers saying they're not going to stock caged eggs on their supermarket shelves anymore is, is big, it doesn't mean we don't need any caged eggs because caged eggs can still be used for the production of cakes and, and so on. But it does mean, having said that, that there's a lot of producers that will have to move into some other form of egg production. So the barn egg production is the the next least expensive method of producing eggs. And so there's some work to be done there to see how those housing systems are best. Now, those, those also use multi-tier and flat deck systems, but it's not a very popular system in the UK, uh, probably because it's not very well understood by the, the consumer. If the consumer is going to go into a supermarket, if they don't want to buy the cheapest eggs, then they tend to say, well, if I'm going to pay... 90 pence for half a dozen barn eggs, I might as well pay 96 pence for free range eggs. So they tend to make that jump because it's not its yeah. not a huge difference in cost. So that, that needs some further work, I think. Um, something else we're interested in, and we have, uh, we're, we're a couple of years into a project at the moment looking at how natural variation in beak shape, beak shape uh, can be used to the advantage of producers in terms of reducing damage caused by feather pecking. So at the moment, the most common way to try to prevent damage caused by feather pecking is to beak trim the chicks, uh, the the laying hen chicks when they're a, a day old at the hatchery. But the UK is trying to move away from beak trimming as a routine practice. And so this could be one way to help that process. If we find that across flocks, you have naturally duller or shorter beaks and some birds have longer, hookier beaks, which are probably more damaging, then it might be that we can select those breeding hens for those duller beaks and and help make some headway towards that age-old problem. The other area that we're looking at is really just purely out of interest in hen behavior, that we know very little about the way any bird, but for me, it's it's about hens, how they sleep. And that may seem like a very odd thing to look at, but my, I started my career really looking at hen behavior and not so much with a focus on welfare. And so this has been something that's been on my mind for several years to as an area of research. And I think if we can understand sleep patterns in laying hens better, we might know what disturbs sleep and and how to avoid those disturbances because we because we all know the the power of a good night's sleep so yeah that's a that's an interesting one that we're a couple of years into as well yeah no that's that's fascinating victoria i'm sure the the poultry industry will look um very different in te- in 10 15 years time to what it looks like today it sounds like it's a very fast moving um world out there yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Come ask me again in 10 years how it's looking. <laughs> Victoria, I'd just like to say thank you for taking the time for joining me today and talking about your research. My pleasure, George. Thank you very much. Thank you to all the researchers who are taking their time to participate in this eight-part series, providing an interesting insight into their research and findings. Thank you for taking the time to listen. We hope you have enjoyed it. You can find out about all the other podcasts in the series on the Farm Advisory Service website or from your usual podcast provider, along with many other podcasts available on a whole range of topics. You can find out more about the Farm Advisory Service 
on the work we are doing by visiting our website on www.fas.scot or if you need advice, please call the helpline on 0300 32 30 161.